0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Next Gen Voices podcast, a platform for real world technologists to share what sparked their interest in technology and the journey of following that curiosity into a successful career in tech. Today, we're joined by Tane Barker, whose passion of video games and curiosity for how they were created sparked their journey into technology. Today's journey is the first of many that we will share on this podcast. And throughout these journeys being shared, you'll see that each one is different. Not everyone is a mathematician. Not everyone is a savant programmer, but everybody is passionate and persistent in their career of technology. So we hope you enjoy our discussion with Tanay Barker. Welcome, Tanay. Thanks for being our first guest on the Next Gen Voices podcast.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much, John, for having me. Um, it's been an amazing journey that I've just had, and I'm super excited to be sharing my journey and my story of, you know, where I came from, how I got into technology, and where I am at now, where I see myself going. Uh, so, you know, and part of that was my first stop with Fenway and, and working with them. So I'm super excited to come back as an alumni and talk about where I'm at now and, you know, how I got here.
0: Excellent. So can you give everyone an overview on who you are and how your journey began? Yeah,
1: Yeah, definitely. So I'm originally from Austin, Texas, born and raised. Um, I grew up in Austin, around Austin, um, in a little town called Buda, Texas. Uh, It's where all my childhood was. After I graduated in 2015, I went to Stephen F. Austin State University, which is uh, located in East Texas, uh, Nacogdoches. Um, you really won't find it on a map. It's really in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but I went and spent my four years there as an undergraduate in computer science. Uh, so it was a really, really great experience. Um, but there was a lot of challenges, you know, being a computer science student, um, you know, at this middle-sized university. Uh, it was a lot. And I was about four hours away from my hometown. I was away from my family. Uh, so this was really me trying to discover a lot about myself and where I wanted to go. And so, you know, after I graduated in 2019, I immediately got a job at a uh, defense contracting company. So I relocated to Dallas and that's where my job was. So I worked at, you know, my defense contracting job for a little, about two years. My first year was basically kind of going through a clearance process and getting a clearance. So I really wasn't doing so much hands-on software engineering because it was a lot of uh, just a process just to, So once that kind of ended, then I kind of got into the nitty gritty of being a software engineer. That was a very interesting experience um, because, you know, in college, I definitely struggled with imposter syndrome. I really didn't like my degree (laughs) at all. I really didn't like it at all. I I thought about changing majors. I thought about going to a different university because I didn't think that I was gonna be successful as a software engineer because I didn't feel that I, lived up to what my peers were doing my my friends who were also in my degree i didn't feel that i was enough and so there was you know a lot of time that i i struggled trying to find the motivation to keep going as a software engineer cuz i just didn't feel like i was good enough um, and that same fears you know came forward when I was in my my previous job and so after a couple of months of working you know as a software engineer for the defense contracting is kind of when I was like I don't think that this workplace was right for me being in Texas and being openly gay and openly non-binary definitely wasn't a uh, super safe space so I started looking for another job and that was the opportunity and lo and behold, Microsoft actually was in my inbox. So I, I decided to talk to the recruiter and tell them about my career aspirations, where I saw myself going, where I, where I wanted to be. And that aligned perfectly with Microsoft's mission and aligned perfectly to their values. So they're like, yeah, we want to interview you. And I was blown away. I didn't expect that to happen. So I interviewed with them. Um, it was like a whole day process. I was you know, studying every day after work, after I went to the gym. I was studying every day um, to ace this interview because I wanted to work at Microsoft so bad. I was like, this is a dream job for me. This is a dream company to be with. So when the day came, I interviewed, probably one of the best interviews I've ever given in my entire career so far. I wasn't as scared as I thought I was gonna be and I felt super confident afterward to where I knew I nailed that interview. And that was, again, I felt so good afterward. And about two weeks later, they gave me an offer letter. I work at Microsoft now as a site reliability engineer uh, for, you know, Office 365, um, and we work specifically with client-facing products for classified customers, uh, and so we focus on, like, Outlook, um, online Outlook, you know, any type of admin centers is what my team does. We are making sure that stuff is up and running for our government customers, and it's been really, really interesting because, again, I'm being a part of some, building something new. You know, whenever I came onto the team, everything was still in its building mode, So I got to help build and produce things that were going to be used by tens of thousands of people. And, you know, I hope now my next gig I can go into program management or another software engineering role because site reliability is a mixture of like service engineering and software engineering. It's a very new role coming around for the entire tech industry. So I'm hoping to either stay in this role or to move into a different one because technology is so... It's so versatile and it's so flexible. That was kind of like my high level journey of where I came from and uh, how I got to where I am now. That's a
0: great overview of your journey. And uh, I mean, to be the next generation and just starting our careers and already having that much experience across a couple different industries and a couple different companies is, is pretty awesome. So going back to the absolute beginning When you were in middle school and high school, were you good at math? Or what keyed you off that technology was an interest?
1: So it's actually really funny. When I was, like, in elementary school and all throughout elementary, middle, high, and college, like, I actually wasn't that great in math. Like, I kind of struggled a little bit where, like, I was in math tutoring. And it's a very hard concept to grasp, especially when you're doing differential calculus and you're, like, why am I doing Why are there numbers and letters? I don't understand. So... I loved science, though. I loved science. I loved history. And I did like math, even though I wasn't like that great at it. And so why I thought I was going to be good in technology uh, is because I originally wanted to be a video game designer. I used to play a lot of video games when I was a kid. Me and my brothers, my dad used to work for Sony. um, And so that kind of got my interest sparked in technology because I loved video games. So when I was looking at colleges, I was like, you know what, I really want to be a video game designer. And computer science is kind of The degree to go into for that. So we did a lot of shopping around for colleges. There was one college that had like a a video game design track within computer science that I thought was really, really cool. And so in high school, I took an AP computer science course because it was a prerequisite for a video game design course. Um, And in that computer science course, I realized I did not like computer science, but I thought it was more because the teacher that I had did not know how to teach it to me. So it was a lot of trying to figure it out on my own, which is really, really hard when you don't have the right instructor. So even though I had that experience in high school, I thought, nope, in college, it's going to be better. Like, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to see it in college. If anything, I have a leg up because I know a lot of this basic concept stuff, which actually did help. You know, in college, I still pursued computer science. And in my beginning, opening intro classes, I was an A's because I was like, oh, I, I know what these are. I know what variables are. I know how classes work. And so that really helped me actually in the long run, even though I hated it. <laughs> and so, yeah, but my original interest was because of video games and I wanted to be a video game designer.
0: Was it one specific game or what? Yeah, all
1: of them. I used to play like Gran Turismo. I used to play, uh, you know, Call of Duty. Uh, I played Sly Cooper. I played. I played basically any type of game. Um, I really liked how in this upcoming early 2000s, mid 2010s, you know, CGI and the use of technology to create realistic gameplay was something that really sparked my interest. And then you got the Wii, you got the Kinect, you had these like augmented reality and a more Im- immersive experience with video games. And I thought that was so cool. And I was like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to be able to create something that will like make you feel like you're in the Iron Man suit. You know, how cool of a ride would that be if like, that exists with VR? And so I had, like, that interest of, like, I want to be able to create something that people get to use and be like, oh, my goodness, that's so cool. And then I can tag my name to it and be like, oh, yeah, like, I, I built that or I made that or I contributed to that. And so just having that, that idea in my head was, like, super cool, which is why I continued to pursue computer science.
0: And that's interesting because video games have only gotten more popular, and I think it's the most popular form of media now. So there's so many gamers out there who may not be good at math but want to build worlds and build experiences like you like you did.
1: Exactly. And there was just so much to like it's especially how immersive it's become with you know augmented reality, virtual reality, AI. You know, we're just we're just on the like forefront of how technology is continuing continuously innovating itself. I mean video games is a byproduct of that. You know, I don't play any more video games as much anymore just because life is busy, but I see it. And I see how just, you know, VR is now just not used in video games. It's used for our military technology. It's used for the health science industry and the medical industry. Like, there's so many ways that it's being integrated that I'm like, wow, this is, and now AI is the next next thing that's coming into every other industry.
0: Revisiting your, your transition from high school to college was it ever questioned to go to college, or did you weigh the pros and cons of it?
1: So I always knew for myself that I was going to go to college, uh, so that was kind of, you know, my typical, you know, graduate high school, going to college, you know, trying to find the right college for me was, you know, more of my journey, uh, because I was, you know, at the time in high school, I was struggling understanding my sexuality, I was trying to understand who I was and where I wanted to be, so like, I think it's kind of funny because I was between two colleges before I decided where I was going to go. One was like a private Christian college and the other one was Stephen F. Austin. Um, After I visited both college campuses, I was like, I don't know how successful I'm going to be going to a Christian, private Christian university and trying to explore myself more. So I went to SFA because I thought it was so much more of that diversity. And that I was going to really find myself surrounded by people who are so much different than me. And, again, be able to be more myself. And, you know, so I, I went with SFA just for that reason. Just because, you know, I knew myself and I knew that I needed to figure out who I was. And I needed an environment that was going to support that. You know, not saying anything bad about Christian universities. I just, I struggled to understand myself. Um, so I, I feel like that was going to hinder me a little bit more because I... Group around the church, um, and I, I thought I needed to explore something different.
0: When you got to SFA, how did you find your crew or your community? Did you link up with other programmers, developers, in your in your curriculum, or uh, when did you enter Fenway Group?
1: So I entered Fenway Group, I think my junior year. um, And I think for that, I went to, I think it was like a a college and career fair, something like that. And I had talked to, uh, I want to say Martin, I talked to Martin, he's the CEO. And he was explaining this and I was like, this is great. Like I am a developer, I'm a computer science student, you know, here we go. And so I interviewed um, and got the job with Fenway. Uh, how I found like my posse, like my crew, I have a lot of different, I guess, I would say diverse group of friends. And like a lot of my friends, I would have my computer science friends, which were all of us that did computer science together. And we all just bonded over the same, like, we're still struggling in these classes or we we're understanding the same assignments or we took the classes at the same time. So we ended up bonding that way to, I you know, like I keep in touch with still a couple of my friends from my computer science crew. Um, and then I had my, um, I also worked in residence life, and so I had my residence life crew, because I worked with them, you know, we lived in the same dorms, we saw each other every day, so that was my residence life crew, and I still keep up with a lot of them, too. You know, I, I think in college, I really became a very social, not going person, so I, I made friends with a lot of people, whether it be my residents, other people that were in computer science, people who were just in STEM majors, you know, getting involved in Fenway, a lot of us took the same classes, had the same instructors, uh, so we were able to all bond that way. And I, a couple of them I still see, like, on LinkedIn and how they're doing well in their careers, too. And it's really nice to see, like, how they're continuing to build themselves up into amazing, amazing people into, in the tech industry.
0: Yeah, I, I see the same thing. Uh, and, you know, it is funny entering college and being kind of interested in technology and then hearing about somebody else maybe talking about something, whether it's a video game or whether they're learning a programming language. When was it that programming really started to click for you? So a lot of people try to figure out, okay, should I learn Python? Should I learn C? Should I learn, what should I learn? There's so much. When did it click that there's a a good course for you to take or a a good uh, YouTube video for you to watch?
1: I think a lot of that was just my kind of experimentation. Like I, usually within my classes, like our classes would focus on a certain language, whether it be... Visual Basic, C++, Java, In that I would learn, you know, through the courses itself. I do know that in my senior year, you know, I was very interested in UI UX design, because I really had, you know, I, I really loved art, I loved to draw, I loved to sketch, and I wanted to do something with that. Um, so I looked at pursuing, a, like, UI UX. I learned about it, I learned about UI UX, what it was, how, you know, that process works and I ended up getting kind of like a mentor who was within UIUX and kind of helped me build a little pet project on the side uh, where I designed basically how an app would run, you know, how it would look, how it would function. I never did any actual coding, but I really loved the idea of how did I want something to look and how did I want it to feel? And so that was kind of like my dive into UIUX. because I really was interested in it and I had a knack for, you know, art and creativity and so I did explore that a little bit. For other programming languages, it kind of was just like, you know, whatever, if we had projects that we were able to choose our own language, you know, I'd kind of do a language that I, I enjoyed, which was mostly Java, just because I knew a lot about Java um, and or Python. For me, programming was always something that was hard. Um, I, I really didn't feel confident as a programmer, and it was really difficult for me to feel like I, I belonged because my ability to program, you know, some people are able to pick it up like that and I, I'm, I'm envious of people who can do that. So for me, I was a little bit slower. Uh, I, it took a little bit of time for me to understand programming um, and especially like with data structures and how those are used. Um, once I got that clarity of like, oh, this is why we use this and this is why we use these type of data structures. This is why you would want to use this type of programming language that in my head was like, okay, just because I want to code something doesn't mean it always has to be in Python or always has to be in Java. So I think, again, it was just experimentation. You know, if I had interest, I'd do a little bit of research. I'd try coding a little bit. You know, if it's something that I actually enjoyed, I'd continue to do it. If I didn't enjoy it, then I wouldn't continue to do it, you know. Don't want to waste my time not doing something that makes me happy.
0: So it sounds like it was really just putting yourself out there and exploring a bunch of different technologies yeah. and following which ones felt right, which ones made the most sense.
1: Exactly, depending on what I was doing. Um, like again, I had that one side project outside of my classwork, but outside after that, I didn't really have any other side projects because, for me, I thought more of my time was I wanted to I wanted to experience things, so I wasn't spending all my time coding or trying to build a robot or something like that. I think one time I tried to dabble with creating an Alexa skill, but that was really, really difficult, so I, you know, would invest my time into my friends and spending time, you know, doing that. I also work two jobs, so it's, I didn't really have a lot of downtime to <laughs> to just code. Um, people who like to do that, I totally respect them, and I, you know, I love that they have that as a hobby for me. I was like, it's not a hobby, it's a job, and I will continue to have it be a job for me.
0: And little by little, you, you picked everything up that you needed, and now you know, you're know you working at one of the largest technology companies in the world. So, I mean, it, it shows that you don't have to be a savant programmer or you don't have to you know make a 4.0. You can explore the environment. You can explore UI, UX. You can go into some development and then find your place in the industry.
1: Exactly. And it's not like that.
0: You touched on one thing was... When did you have your first job? Was that in college or high school?
1: My first, like, programming job?
0: Just first job altogether. Oh. Like, mine was Chick-fil-A. Okay. <laughs> what was yours?
1: Mine was, uh, I was a sandwich artist at Subway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome. You can't beat the first yeah. job, right?
1: No, it can't beat the first job. I went from, like, I was a sandwich artist at Subway, and, like, I went up to being, like, a senior sandwich artist because I was there for, like, a year, and then I worked at a pizzeria for a little bit. Um, and then when I got into college, I think my sophomore year is when I um, get it, got into res life. And I did res life um, for the rest of my college career. Um, and I loved working in residence life.
0: And would you say starting as a sandwich artist and moving through the other different roles you had, how did that prepare you for technology and entering a more technical uh, professional role?
1: I would say that the one area that it definitely helped me in was my soft skills, because being a programmer, being an engineer, you talk to a lot of engineers, obviously, and you're if you're so around a lot of engineers, you realize they don't know how to communicate with each other a lot of the times. Um, so me having experience of working customer service as a sandwich artist, working in residence life, where I had to deal with incidents and deal with you know parents, students, all types of people, I had to really learn how to communicate. And so the, that skill is the one thing that I think I have the best communication skills for someone who is a, an engineer, because I, I really know how to convey like why I need something, or if I need something done, why it needs to be done. And I'm trying to work on more of like just getting to the point and not trying to over explain, because I had issues with that. So I would say like my, my original jobs you know, maybe not have helped me technically, but really helped me in that soft skill portion of, you know, teamwork, communication, collaboration, um, things that are, you know, people don't really see that are much needed in the tech industry. Because, you know, as a software engineer, as a cyber liability engineer, we are not at little cubicles coding all day. Half of my day is literally just meetings, where a lot of those meetings is, hey, something's going on and we need to figure out how to make it better. So we have to brainstorm and come up with ideas to be able to automate something or to be more streamlined about something. You know, it's not gonna just be, okay, I'm gonna go and fix these bugs or I'm gonna go and create this new app or blah, blah, blah. It's really not that. It's not that at all. It's something's going wrong. We need to figure out how we can fix it. There's a toil that's out here and we need to know how to reduce it. There are, you know, X, Y, and Z things that need to be produced and put into our environment. You know, there's so many more things on your plate that again could Collaboration, communication, and teamwork are very much needed.
0: So to touch a little bit more on the soft skills, if you were interviewing an entry-level technologist to be on your team, what soft skills would you look for?
1: Yeah, Um, I think for me, I would look at, you know, how are they, are they a very autonomous person or do they like collaboration? You know, that's going to say, is this someone who is, you know, can easily get things done? That's great, but are they going to be very much for their only solution? How open, like-minded are they going to be for other solutions? So collaboration is a big one for me. I would say, like, teamwork, it kind of goes hand-in-hand with collaboration. And then communication, you know. Do they know how to communicate not just to other team members but to leaders? Do they know how to convey their ideas? Do they know how to persuade if they really need something? Do they know how to, you know, utilize their network? Can they ask questions? You know, if things get too hard, are they going to be someone who is going to try to find a solution by themselves, or are they going to reach out to help eventually when they get stuck? You know, those are some things that I realize as an engineer for other engineers that some people tend to do, and I'm the opposite. You know, if I get stuck, I'm immediately asking questions. I'm like, okay, what's next? Just because I don't want to waste my time if I don't understand something.
0: You mentioned this a little while back in our discussion, but imposter syndrome, so You know, having imposter syndrome is super common, especially in technology, I feel like. How do you balance, uh, you know, giving an aura of confidence and knowing what you're doing and also, you know, having empathy, being humble and asking the right questions at the right times. Mm -hmm. How do you balance that?
1: I can tell you, John, that imposter syndrome is something that really doesn't go away, unfortunately. It kind of comes up, you know, either at very coincidental moments or it comes up randomly Um, you know I first dealt with imposter syndrome when I was in college I didn't understand what it was you know I just didn't feel like I fed in I felt that people were judging me I felt that I got pity grades you know that my professors felt bad for me so they just gave me an A that I really wasn't smart that I didn't deserve my grades or anything like that and that followed me into my my early career you know even with Fenway I, I felt that you know that way because I was around some very smart people who were able to produce these amazing things and really contribute to the team where I felt that I was lacking, I was behind, and I didn't measure up. And, you know, I had to realize that for myself, I needed to change my mindset on that. You know, I needed to be able to be transparent with myself. on like, okay, you might feel that you are not doing enough, but look at the things that you have done. Don't compare yourself to other people because everyone's journey is completely different. And I think, because I really struggled with imposter syndrome, especially in my previous job, you know, which was kind of a reason why I wanted to move jobs because I just did not feel supported in my, my company. I felt that my imposter syndrome was super bad. I almost changed careers completely because my imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome was so bad. And so that actually changed um, twice first time is when I understood what it was. And that was in 2018 and I went into a conference which was the Grace Hopper Conference. It was the biggest conference for women technologists in the entire world. And I um, I went to that conference on a scholarship by the conference. I had submitted an application and they actually accepted me um, out of 10,000 applications they accepted around 460 people. And I was one of those 400 people. And so me and another, another one of, um, my my classmates who also work with Fenway, Ariel, we both got the scholarship. Um, And so going to that conference opened my eyes to the amount of imposter syndrome that everyone experiences and it's not just me. Um, I was able to make great connections with some amazing people. I met some amazing companies. I was able to talk to, you know, big companies like Google, Facebook, Apple, You know, Spotify, Snapchat, I talked to these companies and talked to recruiters, and they were like, yeah, we would love to interview you, like submit an application. And so that's when I first had my little overcoming imposter syndrome. It came back, obviously. And so my second experience where I really pushed through my imposter syndrome and it actually helped me grow was when I was interviewing with Microsoft. I, you know, was so, uh, so passionate to get this job. I was so passionate to work for this company that you know, I was determined to study every day after, after my gym, my workout. So I studied every day for about an hour doing coding exercises, reviewing uh, algorithms, reviewing data structures. Um, I spent so much time learning, that, relearning that stuff and educating myself because I wanted to ace this interview. And so on top of that, I told myself every day and I manifested that I'm gonna get this job. I would tell myself every day in the car ride to work you're gonna get the job with Microsoft, they like they're they love you, you're a wonderful engineer, they are super lucky to have an engineer like you. I was telling that to myself. Yes, I might sound crazy, but I'm in my car alone, no one's gonna hear me. I said that to myself every day. And then even when the day of the interview came up, I would tell myself that in between my interviews, because I had four interviews that were 45 minutes long with a 15 minute break in between. So in that 15 minute break, I was there telling myself, you got this, you're a smart engineer, they're gonna, they're so lucky to be interviewing you, you're a wonderful, talented person, you have this in the bag, you got this, and hyping myself up before every interview. And that, again, was one of the best interviews I've ever had. And so doing those little things was what helped me overcome those really, really big obstacles when it came to finishing my degree and getting a job. Because I did get my first job at that Grace Hopper conference. And I also interviewed with other companies, and I had a lot of interest from other companies as well that wanted to interview me. So that kind of helped also. Knowing that companies wanted me helped my, my self-worth and feel that I was wanted. And then, again, when I interviewed with Microsoft, going through and understanding that I have accomplished so much and that I can learn so much more and that they, a company would be lucky to have me as their engineer, because I provide so much more than a technologist, more than an engineer. I provide so much as an employee and as a person. So those were some ways that I overcame those obstacles. And I still have a struggle today. I won't say that it's completely gone. So I have to remind myself that, you know, you are doing a lot. You are doing enough. You are doing great. And have that talk and check in with myself. You know, I have mentors that gives reassurance that I'm doing good and just remembering that. You know, I luckily also have a great support system with my family, with my girlfriend that also reiterates that to me too. Uh, So, finding that within yourself is the first step, though.
0: You touched on so many good tactics for (laughs) handling imposter syndrome and getting through it. And to review, it sounded like the first was really focusing on the quick wins. So, what what you do add to the team, whether you're a savant programmer or you're more diverse in your skill set and you're able to talk to all the different groups, whatever it is that you're good at, just adding that value. And then... You know, embedding yourself in the community, finding a good conference to go to or a professional organization to, to join or a, just a university club to join even. Uh, and then after that, hyping yourself up every day and it doesn't stop. You got to just stay amped and move with purpose and know that you can do it. You're there for a reason. That's what it sounded like. And that's really good to hear. You know, I struggle with that, too. I know a lot of other people who do in other industries too, um, and those are really good tactics.
1: Yeah, it's definitely something, imposter syndrome is something that affects everyone, and it's something that is not only geared towards engineers, you know, um, people who are in senior leadership even struggle with it today. Um, so those, yeah, those are things that I did for myself that helped, you know, and whether it's actually going and like listing every achievement that I've gotten down as a list Sometimes also helped, you know, and then having mentors that, you know, you were able to confide in and share your wins and they can be just as proud of you and excited with you really also helped with that, that reassurance. Um, So, yeah, but the biggest thing I say is always, you know, focus on yourself and reevaluate and take a third look outside of your own perspective. Be an outsider looking into your own life so that you can understand the impact that you've had.
0: And now moving, you know, that was your struggle in getting into the industry. And, you know, like we said, an ongoing struggle that everybody experiences, but you got to stick with your tactics. Um, but now that you're in the industry, you realize it's not like the movies where you're programming all the time, and you've already mentioned this, but you're not in a dark room programming and code's just flying across the screen. What's what's a day in the life like?
1: So as a cyber liability engineer, again, it's it's – way more intricate than, you know, what you would see as a software engineer. Uh, because we're working with stuff that is in a production environment. This is stuff that is already live. Um, so a day in my life could be that, you know, one, we're attending meetings, whether it be like our daily stand-up, so we are kind of giving updates on where we are with our progress um, of our, you know, user stories that we get assigned. So it could be anything from deploying out a new version of one of our components, it could be, fixing something that was broken um, because we had an incident, we had an outage, and these were some repair items that we need to go and take care of. It could be that we are working on um, something that a customer saw and they want us to go fix for them um, because we do have client-facing uh, services that we support. So it could be that, you know, a customer can't create a Teams meeting in Outlook. We have to go figure out why and go fix it, which is one of the things that I actually had to do. It could be doing that, it can be, um, a lot of communicating, I can tell you, a lot of emails, a lot of teams messages that are being sent, so that's part of my job. The other part of my job is that we do have on call, so we do have to participate in a on call rotation for two weeks. So you're backup for one week, and then you're primary for the next week. Um, so in that stint, you're you're dealing with anything that comes your way. It could be, you know, an outage. It could be that one of our services went down. It could be that. A customer saw something and they want you to go investigate it. It could be that another service impacted our service, so we have to go figure out why their service is down. Doing a screenshot of our services on a weekly basis, you know, what is our availability of of our components? You know, what are where are we? Did we have any dips? If we did have any dips, why did we have dips? Does that reflect worldwide? So again, there's a lot of things that go on in a day-to-day basis. It just kind of depends on what you're working on, um, and whether or not you're on call. <laughs>
0: And that's interesting. It sounds like a lot of what you do is handling fires, right?
1: That is basically what an SRE does, is like my SRE experience is that we handle basically anything that goes abrupt in a production environment. Um, so we're kind of like I would say the firefighters of a production environment because there's a whole series and processes that go through. If a customer sees something, it kind of goes it goes to our service engineers. Our service engineers investigate. If they can't figure out what's going on, then they call us. We actually have to go and then do more further investigating um, and a lot of the times it's kind of getting people together who own that service because again we're just site reliability so we actually don't touch the code bases we have our component teams that own that actual service have to do a lot of the debugging for us and which is really them sitting and being like okay what do you see on your screen and i have to explain well, this is what I see, and they have to kind of guide us because our network is actually separated from the public net. So there is no screen sharing. There is no copy-paste. So it's a lot of explaining, this is what I see. This is what I tried. What's the next thing that you would try? And they explain it to us. or like, okay, I'll try that command now, and then tell them what we see.
0: They can't see your screen. That's got to be really challenging. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's like the first thing that we ever say whenever we get on a bridge, which is basically like a big conference call to solve an outage or solve an incident. Um, So basically, like, when we get a component team involved, they're like, okay, can you share our screen? And we have to be like, no, this is a separate environment. We cannot do any screen sharing, and we cannot do any type of uh, copying and pasting. Um, because we work with classified material and classified data, uh, we actually have to be very, very careful on that, um, especially because we also work with international teams. Uh, so it's a very, again, it's, it's a very tricky situation you have to be in being in my specific uh, environment just because you have to be very careful on the operational security of what you're saying and what you are providing them because it could be something that is actually something you're not supposed to share.
0: That's, that's an interesting dynamic I, I've never even thought about before. So I work in the chemical industry, and it's it's like that at the plant. Mm-hmm. The plant will go down, or things will break all the time. Yeah. We constantly, though, have to balance some of our proactive maintenance and proactive projects with more of the reactive uh, tasks and, and firefighting. How do you guys manage that?
1: So a lot of our stuff is, you know, we have repair items, and after every incident, you know, especially if it's like an outage or anything like that, sorts, we have postmortems or pomos um, to really go and dive deeper on, like, what happened, what was the root cause, how can we prevent this from ever happening again? Um, And so being a site reliability engineer, a lot of our stuff is, we like to say, we wanna be the most laziest engineers ever. So a lot of automation is what we kind of do. How can we better prevent these type of things from happening? Do we have to adjust our our, our threshold levels because we have a different number of clients that are using our stuff compared to worldwide, which happens? you know, we, we do a lot of root cause analysis and we have to go and then go into repair mode of like, okay, can we prevent this from happening again? Or is there a way that we can easily be able to mitigate these type of incidents so that they don't go on for longer longer periods? You know, we don't want someone not being able to access Outlook for more than, you know, a minute. You know, can we get alerted for that faster? If, you know, emails are not sending an Outlook, is there a way that we can get alerted ahead of time before the customer realizes?
0: Do you build tools for monitoring all of that or I mean do you use other tools outside of your own tech stack to monitor and control that?
1: So we have a lot of internal tools that we do utilize. Um, so and like we have Jarvis and Geneva, which is a lot of monitoring tools. Um, We have our own availability dashboards that, again, are also used internally, like internal tools. So we're not really building any of of these for ourselves. What we like to do is we like to automate a lot of this stuff. So it's like, okay, how can we – so we have incidents, right? So it's like, how can we be able to understand what incidents we have assigned to, you know, who? And then every Tuesday and Thursday we have, you know, meetings that are for – Going over like customer raised incidents, so it's like okay, how can we let the on call person know about the CRI's that we have, so that they are not having to fish for information and then look bad in front of everyone, being just like, hey, what's the status on the CRI? And the OCE be like, Mm-mm-mm. so we want to be able to audit we automated that entire process. We automated how can we be able to track this in our own like, uh, like DevOps board, um, so. We take the toil that goes out of just us having to do manual things and just try to automate it. Can we do automated deployments? Or is there a way that we can at least automate part of our deployment so that we don't have to manually go in and press in buttons every so often? Um, So it's kind of like things like that. So we might not have internal tools, but we kind of utilize the internal tools that we do have and see how we can automate it for ourselves.
0: Interesting, yeah. I know with Fenway Group, we worked with a couple clients that we had to use all these different tools, and we were trying to minimize the stack, but, you know, it's it's, it's a constant balance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard because all of our component teams have all different types of tech stacks. They have all different types of libraries and APIs and certificates and secrets and all this stuff, and we have to manage all of this. Um, so, again, it's a lot of toil that we're trying to reduce for ourselves. That's awesome. That's a good
0: overview, both on the reactive firefighting side and the proactive, you know, trying to automate a lot of your job away, you know, so that you can focus on other things and upskill and get better time management. So so moving away from a day in the life and more of what's next in your career? Where do you want to be in 10 years? And really, you know, where do you think you'll be most fulfilled? You you've already made it, you know. You're you're at one of the largest tech companies in the world. You're absolutely killing it out there. What about being fulfilled in your career?
1: Yeah, I think it's good. That's a good question because I think even though I've made it thus far, I have still so much yet to discover. You know, in the tech industry. So for me, I want to get out of defense. I've been in the defense world for you know my entire career almost, and so my next move is to get out of defense and go into commercial, which is still a big step. Um, just because you're working on you know a customer side, you're working with you know tens of thousands of hundreds of millions of users. So I'd love to get on that side. I have so many much. I have a lot of interests in like um, product managing, program management managing. So I would like to become a technical program manager, uh, just because I I really love being a leader and I love being able to work with people. And a TPM is very much um that kind of person. They're the person being like, okay, hey, does what does an SRE team need from me so that they can go get their work done? Is it creating meetings, is this getting information? Is it un, you know unblocking them? Is it getting a team to respond to a, a message? You know, a lot of communication. And then it's like how can we organize ourselves? You know, do we have to find a better way to have efficient meetings? You know, how are we making sure that we are getting our semester asked done? So those are things that a, a TPM or a PM does. And I feel like I would rock at that job because I'm a very much of a people person. I'm a very good communicator. A lot, even my manager has said that I just have really, really good communication skills that I'm able to get things done. Because um, I don't know if I'm just very persuasive or what, but they uh, people like to listen to me. Um, so I've done a lot of things on creating a DE&I focused, you know, V team to focus on DE&I recruiting uh, for our, our area because I was like, I can't be the only non-binary person here. Um, now we have two. We have me and another person. So we're, we're already improving. Um. So doing that, I think in the next long term, I want to be a leader, uh, a VP, an exec of some sort because I really am striving to be a visible leader in a company, especially a big tech company, for people who are non-binary, for people who are openly queer, I'm openly gay, um, and being also uh, half Mexican. So I want to be able to give visibility for people like me and people who don't look like me. So that when you're looking at a leadership team, when you're looking at an exec board, you can see that not everyone looks the exact same way. Um, Especially for people that are uh, people of color and people that come from minority backgrounds. Black and Hispanic women especially don't tend to stay in the tech industry that long. So being able to give them visibility that you can make it and you don't have to give up. You can still be technical if you want. If you don't want to be technical, you don't have to be technical. That's why I want to continue to be in the tech What I love to say at Microsoft, absolutely. But are there other companies that I would love to also have my hands in? I can get, I can list five. It's definitely a an always growing an interest that I will constantly have because I'm ambitious. You know, I want to leave a lasting impact on this world, especially in technology. You know, I would love to go and work a little bit more with AR, VR, maybe some AI stuff because that's up and coming as well. So it's kind of I'm kind of opened to whatever comes my way and i don't have a strict guideline that i I have to fit into i think it's just i kind of leave it up to the universe you know the universe will open doors as it needs to i mean my next big step is actually moving to los angeles and to live over here in socal so that's my first big step (laughs) it's just finding a job that will let me do that
0: (laughs) hey but you gotta have a journey mapped out you know and and it sounds like you know as we've just talked from your beginning. To where you are today and where you want to go it's all coming together and it's all providing such a unique perspective having the technical background having the interest in user experience uh, customer service both internal and external and then having experienced so many different industries and then your personal experiences being able to share those being a role model for so many people out there it's it's really sounding like it's really going to come together. Uh, so we're so excited about your journey, what you've done so far. We're also proud of you at Fenway Group, and we're, we just can't wait to see what you do in the future.
1: I'm super excited to to see what the future holds for myself too, because I wish I could tell you, but I cannot. Um, so I'm super again honored to be able to share my story and to show that you know that it's. So much more is in the tech industry than we see. There is no cookie cutter way to be successful in this industry. And there never will be a cookie cutter way, which is the beauty in it. You know, continue to find yourself, continue to explore what you're passionate about. And you can intermix technology with almost anything. You know, um, I do a lot of nonprofit work too. And I've done a lot of nonprofit work when I'm in Dallas. I just got elected to a a board um, for empowering women. and you know there's still ways that technology is intersectional to that you know don't let technology just be for tech integrate it in any way you see it um, and that can help open doors for you in the long run.
0: It, you're right technologys everywhere and you don't have to be a programmer just to be a technologist. Everybody can be a technologist.
1: Anyone can be a technologist you don't have to be good at math you don't have to be a programmer you don't have to go and build some robot in your free time if you like to see technology grow and you want to innovate the future, that's all you need to be a technologist, to be an engineer.
0: So you know that was a great discussion about your journey. As we wrap up, is there anything that you would tell yourself when you were in high school or, or college that you wish you would have known?
1: I think for me, because a lot of my like growth came from my confidence. Um, and I think finding that confidence for myself was kind of that that kind of climax point. Um, so I would tell my younger self, you know, to just go and be confident in who I wanted to be, who I wanted to represent myself as, where I wanted to go, where I wanted, how I wanted to dress. You know, it took me twenty five years to figure out. Oh, I'm actually non binary. I don't find myself being identified as a woman or a man. You know, I it took me twenty two years to figure out oh, I like to represent myself more masculine. It took me 21 years to figure out I was gay. And it took me 20 you know, twenty years to be like, no, I continue to want to be a technologist and I want to be an engineer. If I got to tell myself that, being just like, hey, you are going to be successful, just be confident in who you want to be. Even if you don't know who that is yet, don't be afraid to try. And I think I will always live by that too, still. If younger Tanae could talk to older Tanae, younger Tanae would not believe where I am now. <laughs> they would not understand how I got here in the first place. Um, and I would just say because of who I am and how I represent myself. I was so true to myself and I continue to be my authentic self. And so one thing I love, my, phrase, my, favorite, my favorite phrase that I don't know where I got it from, I think it was some random guy at college, but it's AMI, always maintaining individuality. So... I always maintain an individuality and I always, always be be authentic. So I guess is all I, all to say, just be your authentic self and you will find the path that you're supposed to be on.
0: Well, thank you so much today for, for being on here and sharing your journey. It sounds like the common theme throughout your entire journey is just be confident in your next step <laughs> be confident in the individual that you are and that you're becoming, you know, yeah. and just keep going, try things, if you fail get back up and keep going yeah. thanks so much today we we really appreciate you joining us
1: thank you so much john i really appreciate it and thank you again to penway group for again being one of my very little milestones that led me to where i am today so i appreciate everyone here at Fenway, and i appreciate you john so thank you